Nima To grab a seat if you've uh, not done so yet as we uh, get ready for our, our Q&A session. My name is Andy Hamilton. I'm the Minister of Crumlin Evangelical Presbyterian Church and also I serve on the steering group for NEMA. And it's been great over these past two days to have been here with you all and uh, not least, of course, with our two speakers who have uh, taught us so helpfully from the book of Daniel. And we do greatly appreciate what both Robin and Jonty have shared with us over these sessions. Uh, we have an opportunity now for 45 minutes of Q&A. So hopefully uh, there are plenty of questions that, that people have about the book of Daniel. Uh, as we've uh, been reminded, it's a, a wonderful book, uh, and yet also it has its challenges as well. And uh, we're privileged to have both Robin and John to here with us uh, to share their wisdom about the, the book of Daniel. So I'm going to ask our two speakers if they'd come and join me, please, up here on the platform. And both John and Phil have uh, roving microphones for any questions. Uh, so... Just stick your hand up if you've got a question, and we'll put those in turn to both uh, John T. and Robin. First question. Okay, well, first of all, thank you both for uh, your expositions and your very helpful sort of steer in hermeneutics. I'm over here in case you're not I'm, I'm wearing the, the, the bright yellow shirt so that you, you can find me. Um, so thank you for all that you've done. I just have one question that has annoyed me since I was a small boy, and I'm wondering if you can help me. Daniel seems to disappear from the narrative in chapter three. Is he conspicuous by his absence in that if only uh, the three guys get thrown into the fire because they don't bow down. I don't want to besmirch his name by insinuating that he does bow down, but it does seem to be that he just disappears from the narrative. Is there anything that you know to explain where he goes and, uh, and, and if, if that's even relevant whatsoever? I, I'm, I think it's, there are bits that we don't know in, exactly, but there are things that I think we can say um, and it seems very likely to me that, that, that at that point in the story, Daniel is out of the scene somewhere. <laughs> He's in some part of Babylon getting on being a civil servant, doing some work. He's not in the... In the at, at that particular time, he's not in the heat of that moment. But Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are. Um, so it just seems to me that, that he's probably just out of the scene for some reason, which we're not told. Um, I think it would be very, it would be reading a lot into the text to say that Daniel bowed down to the statue. Um, yeah. Yeah. You can disagree. <laughs> so I remember preaching on that, I made a comment like it was time of COP26, and I said Daniel was off at COP26. And I think he just would be overseas on, on business or something, and... Um, so it doesn't say anything about where he was, but it, it doesn't say anything. There's nothing in the text to suggest that 
that Daniel did anything in his life that wasn't consistent. It, I mean, that's a question I have also had. But the answer is he was at COP26. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, next question. Can, just when you get the microphone, so just pick up on it. it. It is interesting how sometimes that does happen. So SNP last week had this big vote in Scotland and one of the ministers had to stand down yeah. because of her position. And of course, Kate Forbes is a Christian mm -hmm. and had she been there, she would have had to stand down, I imagine, as a minister. But she's on maternity leave. Issues. And, and there's such a sort of such are the times and places that God is directing those things and sometimes Christians do have to take a stand and there are times when they don't and God knows those and, and he calls us to be faithful in the moment when we are called to be faithful sorry yeah again just to echo the thanks of everyone for uh, your ministry to us I understand why for an audience like this um, you very quickly passed by um, the date of Daniel and um, made the assumption that um, it was 6th century. I'm just wondering how you would answer the question for those either in your congregation or people who you're engaging with in some other level, not necessarily believers in your own churches, um, who do think that long-range predictive um, prophecy is impossible, um, so therefore um, it must have been written after the event. Helpful question. Do you want to go first? No, you go first. <laughs> so it's a, I, think, I think in this room we don't have a problem with that, and in fact it's a huge encouragement to us. For other people it's just impossible. And we're not talking about liberal scholars who are, uh, whose quest is to uh, disprove the uh, authority of Scripture. It's just people who think, well, you know, I can't, uh, there's no way that that happened. It must have been written after the time. What, what arguments? Um, so there are arguments purported for a late 6th century date like inconsistencies in the text. Uh, one is the uh, confusion between Darius and Cyrus. That's a common one that you get Darius at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, and yet it's Cyrus who issues the decree to end the exile. And I think that became a quite a dominant argument in the literature, and a number associated with it. For example, the, the, the son of Nebuchadnezzar was uh, Bel um, Shazer. Nabonidas was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar was Nabonidas's son, I think. And that dominated biblical criticism at, a, at an early part of the 20th century. And then they discovered the Nabonidas cylinder somewhere in Iraq and so on and so forth. So while liberal scholarship has largely receded in its persuasive, how do you deal with just people who think that... I think that... There's no textual argument I think you can make. I think the only argument you can make is, is the nature of, of God and, and, and that Christians, we believe in a big, big God and we believe in a God who is sovereign and who created and who knows and who prophesies. Um, so I think that's how I would, how I would go. Um, if, if the, sometimes you'll see somebody who, 
you know, is not a Christian who picks up some of the textual arguments and say, well, that disproves that this is true. And I think you can respond to these. Um, but the bigger one is... is, is um, because its stakes are so high, aren't they? Because this cannot be anything other than yeah. inspired or a spin. <laughs> it's one of the two. Yeah. Did you want to add anything to that? Only, I, I think I should, the, the, the supernatural, being unashamed of the supernatural. Yeah. Um, I think it was Francis Schaeffer who, the first talk he used to do when he did a university mission was on angels. <laughs> For non-Christians, for non-Christian audience, his first talk was on angels. And people yeah. said, why did you do that? And he said, because I want people to know that we're dealing with a realm that is not the world that they know. Um, and, I, and I think probably reclaiming a confidence in the supernatural. So I, I was um, talking to him this morning. Yeah. Um, I heard this guy on the radio. I was listening to Radio 5, and it was a deb- one of the classic debates about sexuality. And there was a Christian on, and it was, oh, you're just old-fashioned and you have these stupid views and the Bible's stupid. And this Christian, I, don't, I can't remember his name, he gave the best response <laughs> I've ever heard. Because he said, um, to be honest, that's not the weirdest thing I believe. Um, I believe there's a man called Jesus who died on a cross and rose again. And it was brilliant because he unashamedly said that we're not operating in the same paradigm. We're not thinking in the same way. And, and it, what he did was very quickly just turn the conversation to Jesus. It was brilliant mm-hmm. in that moment. But I, I think we get, if we try and answer at the, in, a, in, a, in a naturalistic way, we're never going to persuade anyone. And, and sometimes it's just owning, yeah, I do. I believe in a supernatural God who knows the future and who writes it down for us. Um, I get that might be hard for you to believe, but it's a worldview And we may, I mean, I think that um, we may experience, I mean, maybe this is a dodgy thing to say, but um, I'll not say it then. It's always a good opening line. (laughs) So I I wonder if things, as they get harder and harder in the West, we may experience and see the supernatural more. I think that is true. I think if you look at parts of the world where the gospel is really on the vanguard, so as the gospel moves into the Islamic world, you would see evidence of supernatural. And I think, um, I don't believe that God speaks to me in dreams. I think he speaks to me through his word. But there are a lot of people in the Islamic world, the Muslim world, who are converted through these supernatural uh, means. And we may see more of that, and it may become less unbelievable, the supernatural. And, and, and I think there's a difference between, like the, the questioner on Radio 5, the sort of, dominant philosophy that grips our media. And that book by Sharon James is a brilliant exposure of that. And, and an ordinary, normal person like us who is open to a persuasive answer but needs the question answered. They're not just going to write it off. They're open yeah. to that. Thank you. Another question. And it's a really impressive jumper. I've been dying to ask you what it is. It's from a website called Suit Suit. Uh, it's sustainable T-shirts available online. <laughs> Very good. Is it your Is it your company? <laughs> it's, it's not my company, but 
very reasonably priced at 3495. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I think there's a question. <laughs> Just a question here. I was talking to Robin yesterday at the end of the talk. In my preparation looking at Daniel, I came across the fulfillment in the books of First and Second Maccabees of some of those yeah. prophecies. And can you give us any helps on reading the books of the Apocrypha? Yeah, I can answer that one uh, or try to. So I wrote a book on Daniel with a guy called Bob File, and we did make the decision in the book that we would refer to the apocryphal books, um, not as scripture, because they're not scripture. We need to be crystal clear on that. But I don't think it's any different to appeal to a book like 1 and 2 Maccabees, which describe in detail the uh, Maccabean revolt, you know, Judas Maccabeus, the hammer that overthrew Antiochus. I don't think it's wrong to appeal to these as an historical source any more than it would be to appeal to Josephus in the first or second uh, century. It never makes it into the pulpit or the lectern. But it, you can just say, I would have used the phrase like Christian or extra biblical sources at the time do give uh, evidence of this. And one or two people would ask where they are and I'd point them uh, uh, to them. I, I'm not sure. I don't think that would be... But I didn't say it. I was, I would, it's in the book, though, and I think it was okay to, to do that. Does that help? Yeah. I'd never read them before. Um, or since. <laughs> you read them? No. No. Okay. John, you very helpfully shared this morning uh, uh, part of the way in which you go about uh, sermon preparation and throwing out some ideas. Could you complete that and say how you then actually go about writing the sermon, what you discard then, what you bring with you? Uh, it appears from what you're you know, watching you at the, at the, at the, the lectern, you, you, you don't have notes with you. Um, but, but tell us a little bit about getting to that next stage. Um, you know, you've, you've done the, the, the reading of the text you know, meditating on the text, looking at the meaning of the text, the application, and how do you go from there to what you take in with you on Sunday? Yeah, okay. Um, I want to be really careful asking, answering this question um, because um, it, it changes yeah. um, as a preacher. Um, when, I, when I started preaching, and if some of you are starting out in preaching, um, I used to write 3,500 words, type it out, I'd have it in a little file effects thing, I'd highlight, you know, I, that was how I did it. And I would practice it several times, I wouldn't read it, but I'd have it, and it would be pretty much word for word what I'd written would be what I preached. I think that, I think that taught me a huge amount and was, important, was really important for me. I'm not saying you have to do it that way, but that's how I did it. I think as I've gone on, as I've got more experienced, and I have tried different things and, 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 and done it in different ways. Um, so my practice at the moment really is um, my, what you've heard these, these couple of days, they're not very normal sermons. A, a normal sermon, all my sermons have the same structure, basically. They all have one overarching idea. Mm-hmm. They're just, just one thing. Um, that is what I want people to go away. That, that's what I believe is the, the driving heart of the passage. That's what... Yeah. God has laid on my heart as I've studied his word. That's what I believe the Spirit intended as the passage was written. That, that's what I'm looking for. I want that. 
And I want people to remember that. And then under that, I'll have some points, but those will all fit under the, the overarching thing. That, um, I don't imagine people can remember my points, but I do want them to remember this. Yeah. Um, now, that might be a sentence, but it, but it might be an idea. So, my, so this morning, you know, the slump and the swoosh, that's my big idea. It's not a very... That, that, that probably wouldn't do very well in my preaching practice classes back when I was a student. But that, that was sort of what, what I was driving at. And, and once I've got... So, so I'm very stressed in sermon prep until I've got that. And once I've got that idea, I know that I could stand up and preach it. Mm-hmm. If a disaster happened, if, so, if I didn't... Now, the more time I'm then able to spend crafting and crafting the sermon, the, the clearer it will be. But mm-hmm. that's the thing. Mm-hmm. That then is my introduction. Mm-hmm. It's my application. Mm-hmm. That's, what I, that's the, the thing. And, and I, yeah. I work very, very hard at that. Mm-hmm. And I want that to be... Um, gripping and memorable so that yeah. people will, will hang on to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I did find, I used to go and do Cornhill preaching groups, um, and I often found that people, when they were trying to come up with their big idea, what they would tend to do is just summarize what the passage said, and they'd try and say as much as they, you know, they would, they'd change so many words, like sometimes it was 12 words they were allowed, and it's like, okay, well, how much of the passage can I say in 12 words? And I'd say, okay, no, that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to find the one, th- what's the the one thing that you're going to, to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that that's true of a whole sermon. I, I, I think as a sermon series, I, I have a similar idea. You know, I think you have one overarching thing for a sermon series, and then each sermon fits under that. With I, that, I, I sort of think that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. That then very much shapes. So I have that, and I have come where I'm heading in terms of points. Um, now, my practice is then to, I'll type bits out, I'll write bits, some bits I'll write very carefully, some bits I'll, I'll spend a long time on a paragraph that I really want, and then I'll memorize it. But I don't then take any notes into, into the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Not because I think that's what everyone should do. It's just that works. That works for me. If there's a quote I need, or if there's some Bible passages, I might forget where they are, I have those on a piece of paper. Um, but let me say, and I really, really want to emphasize this, that is not, it's not impressive to preach without notes. No. It's just that we're all different. The classic example of this is Ed Miliband at the Labour leader, when he was Labour leader, he preached, uh, preached he spoke at the, um, if only, at the Labour leader, at the Labour conference, he spoke for an hour and a quarter with no notes. He had no notes, he had no auto cue, he spoke for an hour and a quarter. People were amazed, they were so impressed. Until the next day when they People said, he never said anything about the deficit. He never said anything about that. And he missed this huge chunk that he was supposed to say. Yeah. At that point, you go, well, what's the point of speaking about notes if, you, yeah. if it ends up with you being less clear? Yeah. Yeah. So you've got, to, you've got to work it out. You've got to learn the best way to do it. You've got to try different things. Let me give a different way just to complement yeah, yeah, that, yeah. which makes the very point. So what we would do, and again, I would have changed, and there's a change that's come recently, we meet as a team, um, three of us in the church as ministers, preachers, plus the guys who are training on a Wednesday. And we do, one of us who's ever preaching will present to the others the, the hard exegetical work 
on the text, um, which is the kind of Cornell principles. Obviously, I'm a thousand percent behind that, and I think that's a kind of indispensable tool that you need. Uh, instantly, Dick Lucas, who, who founded Cornhill, I guess, Dick, people said he always broke his own rules. He, he never did. He just didn't make up the rules that have become his legacy. And a Cornhill exercise is just rigor with the text, which is critical in preparation. But it was never meant to be the final product. And what Dick would do is he'd do all that rigor, and the text would be full of pebbles and stones, but there was one boulder, and preach the boulder, and you would get the boulder, and underneath that, all the... Pe so I think that work is critical, but it was never meant to be the sermon. It's the hard graft. We do that on a Wednesday, and we present it, and I get sort of dismantled by the team if it's, if it's not right. And, and what, that ha what that does is it, it, the group, the, all the guys training, learn that as, as good and rich and, and normal. But there's a long way between the Wednesday and the Sunday. And what I've begun to do now is have a day away from it. So I've shifted all admin and stuff from a Monday to a Thursday. And I come back to it on a Friday and I sit down now with an open notebook and I write it. And I don't write it word for word anymore. I write maybe... I don't know, a couple of sides of A4. So a little bit different from, from John T. Um, no less prep, no less work, no less rigor. And I write it with a pen again. And I'll go back to a keyboard. And I write it, currently, I go to the portrait gallery in Edinburgh. And that sounds daft. To the light, and I, I will change venues, I'll change places just to get my mind uh, in gear. So that's two different approaches to get to, in a sense, we're doing the, the same uh, thing. For a long, long time, much longer than John T did, I would have a full um, uh, script. Partly, I think, because I was wanting to show the guys who were training yeah. the need for that rigor and hard graft. There's no shortcuts. But there comes a point where I think that you just don't need to have every word written down. But it's no less spiritual if you do. And it's no less spiritual if you, you don't. It's like silence in a church service and noise. You can have godless noise and godless silence. Or godly noise and godly uh, silence. So hopefully these two perspectives will... I don't sing, though. Well, you definitely should. You have a lovely voice. <laughs> The singing preacher. If I can ask a, a follow-up question yeah. in terms of sermon preparation in relation to the book of Daniel itself, um, what were the, the resources that you used, the commentaries on the, the book of Daniel that you would recommend to us? Please? So my top pick, number one, Ian Duguid. It's uh, I think it's the Expositor's Commentary Series. He is... Old Testament scholar in Westminster or was in the States. And I listened to a series of his sermons on monogism, you know, the website on Daniel, and they were brilliant. That would be my number one book. Secondly, uh, the, the, the series that Don Carson edits, one of the series Don Carson edits, the Biblical Theology series, a guy called Jim Hamilton 
wrote a book called The Clouds of Heaven. And it's quite complicated and quite techy, but it, it helped me understand all the details behind the whole vision stuff in Daniel. And then you rise above that and you get the big uh, principles. And the third book, um, John Lennox, uh, Against the Flow, which is the kind of non-technical, apologetic, interface, application book um, on Daniel. So they'd be my three picks. Ian Duguid, which is on the book stall. There you go. Um, what was the second one? Jim Hamilton. Jim Hamilton, The Clouds of Heaven. It's brilliant, brilliant book. It's biblical theology. Uh, and he's, there's, a, there's a book on that, and there's a book on kingdom. It's just excellent. And uh, John Lennox, Against the, the Flow. Okay. John, do you have anything you'd add to that? No, not really. I... But the, the Bible. Yeah. I mean, we've seen so many times this week, this two days. What, what's the beast? What, what is it? Revelation 13. I think that's very true of Daniel and very true of the rest of the Bible. And a good commentary will help you. I mean, no commentary on the Bible does any more than help you a little bit and that John. There's no definitive commentary. God will not let that happen. It's only the Bible in the end. But they do help. I like reading them. Thank you. Um, other questions? We'll do the next yeah. one. Hello. Um, one of the things I find really helpful um, that I hadn't fully appreciated before was the fact that the, the visions or the revelation um, emboldened Daniel's actions. Um, and also the idea of how, you know, when you're, you're preaching a vision, you know, you don't do it like an epistle. You might keep the heart of the vision to the end. And I, I just had a question, you know, do you think there would be any value or would it even work to preach Daniel with the visions interspersed throughout the narrative, mm -hmm. um, almost like tell the story chronologically uh, in your sermon series. Like, do you think that would work? Great question. You go. Um, yeah, I, I do. <laughs> um, I think it helps tie the, the two halves together. It helps you to understand why and how Daniel was able to do what he did for 70 years in, mm -hmm. in exile. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't see any reason why you wouldn't do that. And it, and it might well help this idea that the first half of Daniel is easy and the second half of Daniel is a nightmare. Let's avoid it. Yeah. And actually, it, weaving those two things together, I, I think Robin and I were talking about this earlier, and Robin was making the point that there's dates all over the place in Daniel. You are supposed to link them up. Mm -hmm. So make those links. I mean, the two, the two textual reasons that would help you say is it, because we would question this, is it okay? Because we, it's inspired this, is it inspired this way or is it just that we, we actually are not afraid of the fact you get the narrative, then the visions, and it's just helpful. So there are dates on every chapter, which is why there are dates. The other thing, it's really hard, James, to, to actually work out what the structure of the book is. Is it 1 to 6, 7 to 12, or is it 2 to 7, or is it um, four to eight, whatever it is? And you, you'll find a different structure in almost every commentary. And I wonder if it's so hard to pin down that it does give you a little bit of flexibility. Not beyond, though, one, three, three, four, five, six. I think that's a line. 
And then, so I'd keep that sequence going, but I mean, I'd, I'd be right up for when I, I'm not allowed to teach Daniel again. I've done it three times. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, seven, I think, would be. But I'd actually love to have a go at doing it. I mean, I was very persuaded by your comment this morning, Daniel 5. Why was he so incredibly steady at that point? He'd had two visions. Yeah. And I wonder if he'd read them, or gone back, to, not read them, written them down, gone back to them in his mind again and again during that period. Yeah. yeah. Further questions? Any from this side of the room? Okay, so um, without going down uh, rabbit holes, what, what exactly are we to do with and what are we to make of the fine details of the prophecies? How do we relate to those and how we, yeah. do we, we relate those to our times today, the specific uh, weeks and days of timings, etc.? Yeah. Good question. Um, I'll make a simple comment, and then you can say something intelligent. The, um, the, I had a guy, the, the guy who was my mentor, pastor, when I was a very young assistant, he had a thing he used to say to me all the time, and that was, the main things are the plain things, the plain things are the main things. Um, and, and apocalyptic literature, it is creating an impression that you're supposed to step back and feel the weight of the impression. So it's a bit like in Lord of the Rings. We were saying, you know, Fantastic Beast, Lord of the Rings. These are apocalyptic movies, right? So if you watch Lord of the Rings, it's loads of apocalyptic imagery. And if you stop and go, oh, I don't understand why the third orc from the right has got a red face, but the next to it has got a green face. You're like, what are you doing? That's not the point. Step back and feel the force of the orc army approaching you and, and I so I do think that there's it's not to deny the details and we'll come to those in a second but sometimes the details can become so we become so obsessed with details that you you lose sight of the main things and and sometimes it is helpful to go look we don't always know exactly which horn is which and which one got snapped off when and why and but the over the main thing is clear God rules Jesus wins the king's are vicious, the king's war, and yeah, there are details that we can, but, but you don't lose the main things. And, and I, I find that a really helpful principle in preaching. Yeah. What is the main thing here? And let me preach the main thing. Mm-hmm. And then we can touch on some of the more complicated things as we go. Yeah, um, yeah. And that, that's spot on. I would agree with that. Although, not although it's not a caveat, but there are points when we went through Daniel where we were mm. definitive. So, for example, um, in chapter 8, Daniel didn't know what the beasts were. He was told what two of them were, Medo-Persia and Greece. He didn't know about Alexander the Great, that prominent (coughs) horn. But if you lived through that point, it was obvious that's what it was. And he didn't know that Alexander's kingdom would be divided in four. But if you you lived through that, you would know that's, that's what Daniel... It said. So I think there are bits of apocalyptic literature that become obvious to us yep. as we go through salvation history. Um, the number 1260, uh, which is used in chapter 8, chapter 11, um, and the, the, the phrase times, times 
no, yeah, time, time, time. times, so half a time. They both mean three and a half years. I think it's really plausible to say that the period of the um, Antiochus's persecution of the people of God, 164 to 167.5, three and a half years, uh, Judas Market, that's plausible, but it's obvious. But when you come to the very end of Daniel chapter 12, and there's a different set of numbers, I think it's, if you look at a commentary, you will see uh, not half a page, but 20 pages, because these are, we don't know the answer uh, to, to that. So I think there is wisdom in saying, when it's clear, as you further down in, look, 70 weeks, for example, I think the, I mean, you, you heard me kind of make a dog's dinner of the 70th week, because I don't really understand it. Is it a jubilee week? Is it the last days? But the first 62 and the first seven and the 69th are clear because we live at this point in, in salvation history. So I think that's a, a way of, 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 of dealing with it. And I think when you come to something in a commentary, when a whole lot of able people can't work out what it is, just say that. Uh, we don't need to know what it is. And the end of Daniel really helps you. I want to know more. Daniel, come on, get back to your job. Go your way. Yeah. So as we go through history, though, things will become uh, more uh, clear uh, to us. Hope that helps. Good question, though. And it's the kind of question, like your question, people will ask you these questions. So, for example, if, if you have folks in your church with a, a strong dispensational background, you need to be able to to sort of engage in a respectful, intelligent way to say, well, okay, I understand where that's coming from. And they will be relieved when you say, well, I understand some of that, but we don't need to be consumed by complex dispensational charts to understand uh, Scripture, which is in why some parts of the world people won't preach Daniel and Revelation. To what, to what great cost to the church yeah. that you don't touch these Bible books? Thank you, though. Good question. Yeah, I think when I, I'm just showing the when, when I preached Daniel 11, mm-hmm. um, which is does seem to have very historical yeah. references to particular people. I remember the, I, I started with the idea of um, a cherry pie, and if you have a slice of the cherry pie, you don't have to eat the whole thing to know what the whole thing is like. If you take that one slice, it tells you about all the rest of the pie. And if you take a slice of human history, because human history is consistent, that, why are we given Daniel 11? We we learn about that particular slice of human history, but it tells you about all the rest of human history. And and, and therefore you can make applications from the craziness of chapter 11 to our situation. We don't have exactly the same king of the south and running all over the place. But the same things are happening because we live in the same pie. And before lunch, what we did is we took a spoon out of the pie, and the spoon we took out of the pie was the bit about the toes yeah. and mixing in marriages, and, and that's what happened in that little bit of history. And then we made the application to politics today. So that's exactly right. And so take a chunk out of the pie and just say, well, there's a plausible explanation of that detail, but don't, don't feel you need to go through. And I mean, the... the in Ian Duguid's commentary, not in his commentary, because the editors probably took it out, but in his sermons, he, he, he said, there's some terrible sermons on 
these chapters with long, long explanations of the kings of the south and the kings of the north. You just need to know that this is describing this yeah. detailed period of history. Wow. Yeah. And one illustration, like Bernice marrying Ptolemy the first son or whatever, that's all you need to, yeah. to do. And you get that. I think the one little hint you get, the encouragement to have that explanation is Daniel 2, that one odd verse in Daniel 2 which is out, it's in the ESV, not the NIV. Can I ask a question about the, the imagery used at the end of Daniel chapter 9 and how that's referring to Antiochus Epiphanes and, and the Maccabean revolt, but then how that same imagery is then picked up by Christ in the Olivet Discourse and how we handle all of those things together. So you mean chapter 7, 8? Yeah, so, so chapter 7, the, the, vision of the, the vision of the beast, the big beast, and the horns that come out of the beast in chapter 7 is like the description of one of the horns in chapter 8. So, and that's almost certainly talking about that particular individual Antiochus. In chapter 11, that's picked up again. Um, what I'm saying in chapter 9, the abomination that causes death might not be that. It might be the destruction of the temple. I don't know. But certainly, that specific stuff is picked up all the way through Daniel to talk about that one person, but also as a type of antichrist, somebody that is repeated. All, as Antiochus has appeared all the way through um, history. And your question is, Jesus picks it up. Is he speaking about the antichrist? Is he speaking about a spirit of the Antichrist? I think probably both. Um, uh, or is he speaking about the destruction of the uh, temple? It's definitely one of these three. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Which do you think it is? I think it's all. I think it's all. I, I think, yeah, it's, all I think, I think so. it's a pattern that, that repeats through history and it is mm -hmm. prophesied in Daniel. Yeah. And it's fulfilled partially in... Mm -hmm. In the Maccabean revolt, yeah, and the, the days leading up to that, but then also is fulfilled in eighty seven. So, so the one thing I've really struggled in Daniel, to, to, well, a lot of things, but one thing I've not nailed down in my mind yet is when and if it talks about the destruction of the temple in eighty seventy, is that a bad thing or a good thing? I mean, in, in the time of Antiochus, it was a terrible thing, but after Christ, it was a necessary thing. And who was responsible? Was it the Jews or was it the, the Romans? So that's a kind of bit of uh, unleft work to do. But I think the bottom line is that, as far as we are concerned, in Daniel we read about an individual who opposed God's people then. 1 John 1 would say that antichrists come all the way through history um, and there may be an antichrist. Again, I wouldn't, I'm, not, I'm not sure we'd all have different views on that. But I think that's one of the one of the things that will become clear if we happen to be alive. <laughs> um, all we can say is that it's, it's plausible um, in our time and in our culture. And there's no doubt that you can persuade people that there are antichrists yeah. in the world today. They're not everywhere. Many of the powerful people in the world are not anti-Christ. They are well, they are, but they're antichrist in a way that they stand in place of Christ. And there are some who directly oppose um, uh, Christ. We have a few minutes left, so maybe 
Um, one more question, if there is one out there. I was a tired answer. <laughs> Can just ask a question, when you're planning preaching series, what factors come into what series you preach on? Have you any share anything on that? Oh, great. Um, the way that, I'll tell you what we do, I mean, I, I'm not saying this is right, this is what we do. <laughs> um, I tend to have one big project that I'm working on, um, that we as a church are working through. Um, and, and we will give the September to Christmas and then Christmas to Easter to that project. Yeah. And then I tend to preach from Easter to summer, shorter series um, on, on shorter books. So, for example, um, the last four years we've been going to John's Gospel. Um, I preached the resurrection on Sunday. Um, and there's some real value to taking a book, going fairly slowly, but doing a couple of terms on it. Now, we've interspersed that with Genesis. So the two books that we're working on are John and Genesis, right? So we, we go between those for our big chunk teaching stuff. Mm-hmm. We're just about to finish John, um, so we'll be doing, entering into a new challenge. Mm-hmm. So I said we're going to start Galatians. But we, 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 that idea of something big that we're getting our teeth into and working on Mm-hmm. I then break that down into smaller series. Like you break John into sections, and each one you give a slightly different artwork to, and a different feel to, and a different title to, so that people kind of can see how the, the thing fits together. Yeah. Um, then in the summer term, I'll tend to do much shorter series. Um, you know, we'll do a four week series in the book of Ruth, or we'll do um, one of the New Testament epistles, or we'll. And, and so we tend to do it that way. Um, mm-hmm. And in that way, try and cover a, yeah. a broader. Sweep of stuff. Yeah. Exactly the same. We would do exactly the same. We've evolved to that. I think where the church is at, um, we, this year, for example, we're doing nine months in Hebrews slowly, which is a challenging book. And all the small groups are doing it at the same time. And we tend to do a project a year. Yeah. Hebrews this year, Genesis next year, it was Romans the year before. And what we do as a team of three of us is that we will take on one of the sort of series we're going to do in a year or two years time and we'll take the responsibility to sort of lead and guide the other preachers and the team as to so I would be listening now on my um, I've got these great big huge headphones that my children totally despair of I'd be listening to Genesis a lot is that the band? (laughs) (laughs) the gospel choir aren't they? Yeah, so I've been listening to Genesis a lot um, at the moment because it's a way out. And I think listening to people's preaching is great, but not if you're going to preach on that in four days' time. But way down the track, I think that's helpful and and useful to do. Our time is just about up. Uh, So thank you so much to to John T and Robin for all your ministry these two days, but also the the answers you've given uh, in this session as well. NEMA